to give you a preview of what we can expect and to tell you what we can expect on this planet in other areas of the sky is our favorite semi-monthly contributor, a man with the best voice in all of radio, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He's a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer. He's also a podcaster, and you can check out the Dr. Sky experience at Red Apple podca- Red Apple podcastnetwork.com let us commence with the infinite side of midnight steve it is great to talk with you as always well frank good morning to you and the listeners it's good to be doing another infinite edition of the other side of midnight wow 10 a.m can't come fast enough as we're talking about this amazing hearing which actually has a title and here it is Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon, Implications on National Security, Public Safety, and Government Transparency. If that's not a lot to say, I hope those people that are in the hearings have a lot to say. I think we're set for, hopefully, some groundbreaking information. At least that's what we're kind of hoping for. Yeah, I I certainly hope so. It's certainly going to be interesting, I think. And uh, if people, by the way, have questions throughout the hour that uh, Dr. Sky is going to be with us, you are welcome to give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. We're going to try and get to as many of your calls as we can here, 800-848-9222. Steve, before we talk about the hearing and uh, what's happening in the sky, give, last time we talked to you, I think the temperature in your area of the country was hotter than on the planet Mercury. W- what's going on? Are, are you still with us? You haven't melted yet out there in Arizona? Well, actually, you're right, Frank. I've taken a little sabbatical here. I'm doing another one of our Dr. Sky evenings up in Sedona, which, lucky for us, is about 12 degrees cooler. And every degree counts because, get a look at this, for the last almost month, 25 days consecutively, we broke the all-time record that was set back in June of 1974, in which we had 18 days of 110-plus degrees. I came out of my home the other day, not wanting to, around 2 p.m. in the afternoon, like we normally do. The temperature outside was 118, and I don't know how accurate this is, on my dash uh, thermometer in my vehicle, it registered 123. So I looked and I said, wait a minute, that's not the inside temperature. That's an unofficial temperature. We're going through the throes. We're at the epicenter of hell, as I describe it. And it's the most bizarre thing, Frank. You kind of get used to it. You know what I'm saying? If you really don't, you have to get used to it. But I'm sure other people around the nation and around the world are also feeling misery, but our Humidity and dew point is going up. And guess what? The monsoons have not been around here. That's usually the cooling effect. So things are strange in Phoenix, Arizona. That's why I'm in Sedona right now looking at the beautiful heavens. It's about 75 degrees. I'm blessed. You know, recently one member of Congress made headlines, and I sort of mocked this, and you'll tell me if I'm out of line by mocking this. She made headlines by saying the Three hottest days, the the three hottest days last week in recorded history were the hottest days that we've experienced in 150,000 years. Now, I kind of mocked this because how does anyone know what the temperature of the planet was 100,000 or 90,000 years ago? It, was I out of line by mocking this or 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 is is it possible to actually know what the temperature of the planet was 150,000 years ago? Absolutely not, Frank. I mean, the closest we can come to talking about, again, that's connection, as I always repeat, and for good reason. All weather comes from the sun. Right. Neanderthals, I don't think, in caves, and good people like them, I'm sure they were, whatever their business was, they didn't have any kind of thermometer measuring equipment. The only thing we can talk about is looking at tree rings 
which indicate the differences of solar cycles and things like that. But no, Frank, I mean, it's kind of funny. I would laugh, too. That's an exaggeration, to put it mildly. All right. Um, uh, let me get back to the hearing. A lot of discussion about this. A very, very interesting hearing based on everybody that's involved. Here is uh, Florida Republican Congressman Jared Moskowitz. Taxpayers are paying for programs that are keeping this information secret. They have a right to know where their dollars are going. Um And with claims coming forward, as technology is getting better, people are capturing things on their phones now, right? We we need to know whether these things are uh, are they domestic, Uh, are they foreign, or are they are they something else, or do they not exist? And the government needs to have straight answers. And so the American people deserve to know the truth on this. Uh, Unnecessarily censoring things or overclassification is what leads to all of these theories that have been out there. Steve, give me your take on what people should be expecting today and what's going to go on at this hearing. Well, here's a quick summary. Lawmakers are supposed to hear from three witnesses. David Grush, who obviously has been the whistleblower, talking about so many things that I think are very interesting. I mean, we can't say that they're not real. That's why he's going to have to testify and hopefully be taken uh, seriously on this. His basic take is, that the American government, military and such, our government, and maybe other governments of the world, have in possession alien artifacts, meaning maybe spacecraft like flying saucers, if you want to call it in the simplest way. And maybe, I don't know if he really defines this in any great detail, possibly even recovered bodies of extraterrestrial beings. Now, that's interesting. I want to hear what he has to say. But another individual that's going to testify is a gentleman named Ryan Graves. He's the executive director of Americans for Safe Aerospace. Now, of course, his organization, and I think it's rightfully so, we need to know what's penetrating our airspace. Commercial pilots, credible people, military pilots, people on the ground, private pilots, other people are seeing things moving through our airspace. We need to know. And obviously his testimony hopefully will open up some more interesting information on this. And then one of the other people that's actually going to testify is a retired commander named David Fravor. He's the former commanding officer of the Navy's Black Aces Squadron. Now, his story goes way back to the USS Nimitz and a time when apparently F-18 jet fighters off of the aircraft carrier and other aircraft interdicted the strangest of all vehicles that were seen in the sky, the ones that we refer to as Tic Tacs. And I've followed this in many of my public programs. We show so many of the YouTube examples. You know, some of them are graphic to the point I'm saying, like, you know, animation. But if those things are what they actually saw, the way the animation shows, it shows this object maybe 20, 30 feet in length. It looks like reminiscent of the namesake, the Tic Tac Mint. But inside of it, it has like this kaleidoscope of lights that's moving. But that's not the important part. The important part is the jet fighters interdict these objects. They follow them or get close to them. We don't really know how close. I mean, this hopefully he will explain in greater detail. But the object dove into the ocean, and as it went down underwater, it created like this whirlpool of water underneath it. And then mysteriously, the object popped out of the water as if it knew that these jet aircraft were there pursuing them, and it followed in circles as the aircraft were making circles over that whirlpool. And then finally, Frank, it shot up allegedly to seventy or 80,000 feet not in minutes, but in seconds. That's amazing. So lots more has to come from this. But again, the whole spirit of this whole you know, congressional hearing, I like the spirit of uh, Congressman Perquette. 
hopefully they don't leave that room without some, you know, bit of information here. We obviously have to know what's going on. Every American citizen, every person on earth needs to know an answer to this. And we also know what? That Senator Schumer has been very active in trying to pull both sides of the aisle right. together and uh, not only demand it, I gather, which he should. Let's get to the bottom of this. So stay tuned, folks, to all forms of media, right? I don't know. Is WABC going to be carrying this? I don't know. I, I imagine. Uh, uh, I think a lot of the stations we're on are going to be are, are going to be covering it. Yeah. And uh, I've offered myself mm-hmm. up to uh, for commentary throughout the throughout awesome. the day. Uh, but, you know, these three witnesses strike me all as very credible. In the case of uh, sure. Commander Fravor, he, basically, he could say he saw this object and he's not familiar mm-hmm. with anything that flies this way. OK, could, he can't really state with certitude what it is. David Grush, in that News Nation interview and in that interview that he did with uh, Ralph Blumenthal, and Ralph Blumenthal has been on the show several times, he was a lot more explicit. He said that he has come to learn that the United States government is in the possession of aircraft of non-human origin and possibly even Mm -hmm. bodies of extraterrestrials. However, when pressed, he said he hasn't seen either of these things. Now, if you're a member of Congress that is more of a cynic than, say, Congressman Burkett is, doesn't the conversation sort of end there? Or where does it go once he says, no, I've never seen any of these with my own eyes. I just kind of know about this second and third hand. Right. It's like a repetition of the various other committee hearings that we've had. So somebody has to show some kind of hand here. They have to show their hand where there is a direct link to something credible that we can show as evidence or not just a video. But remember, the story, and I'm kind of you know, moving in a little slightly different direction, but it's basically on the same subject. If you look at Robert Lazar's story a long time ago, we've heard this before. I mean, we've heard this in the 19, late 80s and the 90s. You know, Robert Lazar, for people that may not know, claims he was a naval intelligence individual who worked on a very secret project hidden inside of Area 51, at a very small little compound called S4 in another dry lake area called Papoose Lake. What did he see, Frank? He claims to have seen these items that were artifacts, meaning spacecraft, alien spacecraft, like flying saucers, if we call it that, and that they actually had levitation and he could see the anti-gravity effects of this. But again, where's the evidence? And we're hoping somehow that, you know, if all these congressmen are talking, you know, the talk, we hope we get some information that says once and for all, you know, show us a bolt, a nut, show us some hieroglyphics of some kind of right. alien signatures, some kind of material that's not of this world. But let's be positive. Let's see what happens, because many people in the mainstream media are kind of laughing at this, saying with all the crises going around with Ukraine, you know, with all the government things going on, investigations, you know, the Trump story, all this stuff. Why are we wasting time on UFOs? It's burning government time and money. But I do think something has to come out of this, at least my optimism, and uh, we'll hopefully get something. Absolutely. By the way, I misspoke a little earlier. I introduced Congressman uh, Jared Moskowitz as a Republican. He's a Democrat. So mm-hmm. it's even more okay. of a bipartisan uh, nature than uh, than I alluded to. Absolutely. Uh, we're, Absolutely. We're paying pretty close attention to all things involving Elon Musk. Elon Musk is on a tear, renaming things after the letter X. The thing that he had that was already <laughs> named after the letter X was SpaceX. We've been talking a little bit about the SpaceX Starship launch. What's going on with this and when will this happen, if ever? Well, we go back to April 20th and his attempt, of course, they even knew they had a high probability that the launch of this massive, the most powerful rocket, Frank, ever launched on the Earth 
well over 16 million pounds of thrust may not make it to space, and it sure didn't. And it had an interesting story. So what they've got going on there? Starship Booster Number 9 is now standing tall and proud on the launch pad at Starbase in Boca Chica, Texas. And with its 33 impressive Raptor engines, new and improved, we hope, because they have a concept in there where the internal engines do some vectoring, meaning they, once it's launched, they have to kind of, you know, bend a little bit to make the rocket go up in simple terms. But we're waiting to get this thing going into space, maybe as early, get a look at this, as late summer, they'll then mount the 165-foot Starship number 25, that's the spacecraft on top, the beautiful stainless steel sci-fi-looking upper stage. But it's possible, like I mentioned, a late summer launch. But now there is interesting things going on, too. They have at this point in time, after following up on this, no regulatory issues at present to stop a launch. And they've installed something that they probably needed a long time ago. How about this? A water splash pit. What's that? Even going back to the Apollo days, we noticed this amazing amount of water that was blown down into the big hole where the rocket, the Saturn V, launched. They didn't have that on this previous Starship. And Frank, did you see the images of how it destroyed the launch pad? I mean, it was, chunk, it was sending chunks of concrete out into the open air. So this is installed to mitigate the damage to the pad. So that's another interesting thing. But here, here we talk about SpaceX as a company. This is fascinating. It's now the most valued private tech company in the U.S. Their value is estimated at over $150 billion. But to put conclusion to this eventual next Starship launch, there's a 60% chance for Starship to get to orbit. That's better than before than this last flight that they had. But it all depends on a couple of things. They have to get right the booster stage separation. And all the Raptor engines have to work as planned. But this is fascinating because that April 20th launch, we found out that the separation was the issue. Some of the Raptor engines were of a problem. And when that spacecraft got up about 12 miles up into the sky, it actually fell thousands of feet and they pushed the destruct button. But guess what didn't happen right away? It didn't go kaboom. So we're wishing him, that is Elon and company, great success. But stay tuned for this. If any of our listeners are down in Florida by the Cape, we're expecting another Falcon Heavy launch. They've had six so far in the history of Falcon Heavies. But I believe that's 11.04 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time tonight. That is, of course, as we move into the new day here. It's going to launch and put into orbit a Jupiter Echo Star massive satellite. I believe that's for South America. So if anybody's down near the Cape, they should be able to get to see an amazing light show. Remember, the Falcon Heavy was the big, powerful rocket. Our Artemis rocket now took that place. And now Starship with allegedly and probably realistically 16 million pounds of thrust. The Saturn V, Frank, was only seven and a half million pounds of thrust. And that was a big firecracker. That was amazing. That's uh, that's for sure. All right. A lot of people are eager to chat with you. Uh, Steve Cates is my guest. 800-848-9222. Let's begin with John in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, good uh, morning, guys. Morning. Um, so good morning, John. My, my uh, question is, um, I read recently that the James Webb Telescope, the new telescope in space, um, it actually disproved the Big Bang Theory because uh, where there should be nothing, like back 14 billion years into the past, there's galaxies that are billions and billions of years old. I was wondering what you think of that, if it disproves the Big Bang Theory, like they say, or if you, dis- you, know, if you disagree with it. 
Well, I do, Frank. I mean, I mean, John, excuse me. Thank you for your call. That's a very interesting question. I would disagree with the concept because we haven't really gotten to see the very edge of creation. I mean, 13.77 billion years ago is a long time, even for a James Webb telescope. But what we're seeing something very interesting, Frank and John, this is quite fascinating. The James Webb is showing us something even more bizarre. It's showing something called dark stars. What the heck could that be? These are stars that are apparently consume what we call dark matter, which is still something we don't understand. It's 25% of the universe is dark matter. And John, what gets even more bizarre, it's looking back at a time when particles were coming together in the universe, not just galaxy creation. So this may be, who knows, maybe I'm wrong. I don't have all the answers. I'm always honest. But what happens is this dark matter combines and heats up hydrogen and it eventually, according to the astronomers, in their early theory on this, it's actually creating black holes. So what we're seeing, to put this in best con- you know, concept I can, we're probably not disproving the Big Bang theory. We're probably still searching to get to the end of the line, and we're getting closer. But no, I still think it really did happen 13.77 billion years ago. A big expansion out of nothing, a single infinite point. It baffles and boggles the mind. Thank you. you. Thank you, John. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. If you want to jump on board, we have one, two, three, four open lines. 800-848-9222. This is the infinite side of midnight as we do this every two weeks under the watchful eye of Dr. Sky. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. NYC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Well, it's a marvelous night for a moon dance with the stars up above in your eyes. A fantabulous night to make romance neat the cover of October skies. You know, the leaves on the trees are falling to the sound of the breezes that blow. You know, I'm trying to please to the calling of your heartstrings that play soft and low. You know, the night. Seem to whisper and hush You know the soft moonlight seems to shine In your blush Can I just have one more moon dance? 
Van Morrison says it's a wonderful night for a moon dance. Also, a great night for talking about the moon, and we have the go-to guy in order to help us do so. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, veteran radio and TV broadcaster, edutainer who knows all about astronomy, knows all about space, knows all about aviation. Also, a terrific podcaster, and you can listen to the Dr. Sky experience at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, let's talk about the moon. Uh, apparently, the sure. nation of India is trying to do what we're trying to do once again, which is go to the moon. How are their efforts going? Well, so far, another spacecraft. They had a failure, as many nations have. Of course, the United States and Russia and China have the only ones, of course, nations that have actually soft-landed or done anything in the lunar area successfully. But the Indians have a spacecraft called Chandrayaan-3, and it's on its way to the moon. It'll be a robotic spacecraft that's attempting to make a soft landing on the moon as we continue to move through this year. And we wish them great success because the Israelis had one that did not make it to the surface. And as we talked about in previous editions of the Infinite Side, we talked about it releasing these little tardigraves on the moon, DNA samples, and some kind of digital library but it's interesting. Uh, we're seeing more and more of the countries around the na- around the world, that is, of course, looking at the exploration of the moon. We were just looking at it tonight here in Sedona, and I'm sure people listening to this radio show, if you're able to see the moon in the sky, it's at a beautiful first quarter right now. Gives the greatest shadow relief, Frank, if you have binoculars or a telescope. We were de- look de- looking deep, that is, into some of the lunar craters and seeing shadows cast across the basins. Just amazing. So, the future of exploration, at least privatized and also uh, large nation space efforts, are uh, really centered around the moon for many reasons. I think it's a very promising future in uh, lunar exploration. Now, let's hope so. 800-848-9222. Don is in Long Beach. Hello, Don. Hi, Frank. Hi, Dr. Sky. Um, I'm just going to ask Dr. Sky. Yeah, hi. Are you familiar with the meteorite that they retrieved? Uh, it was off of New Guinea. It uh, crashed around yes. 2014. Yeah, they think it came yes. from another solar system, and they found these little beads inside of it. Absolutely. Do you have anything you can add? Well, Don, yes. The backstory on that is Dr. Abby Loeb, who obviously is a great scientist up in the Harvard, Harvard University, he, of yes. course, is kind of famous in the world for his analysis of this object that a good friend of ours discovered, Robert Weyrich, discovered from the Haleaka Observatory in Hawaii back in 2017, this weird-shaped asteroidal body that almost looks like a pancake. And Dr. Loeb thinks that it's really an interstellar craft because what's strange about it, Don, is that it was accelerating faster out of the solar system than it probably should. But going back to the New Guinea incident, he claims that this object that crashed into the ocean as it went down under the water is definitely of extraterrestrial origin. Now, whether it's a meteorite, we don't know. But allegedly, they've dug up these little spheres of little metal, and they actually got in trouble because the nation, I gather, of New Guinea did not give them permission to do this. So they were caught up in this conundrum of, you know, who has rights to this stuff. But if true, they're saying that some of these little spherical objects do not resemble anything that we've had. I mean, are they made of metal? Yes. Are they made of some kind of metal that we know about? Yes. But the form and structure of that is quite strange. And the story continues, Don, that uh, hopefully they'll get some better analysis and maybe get themselves out of some legal binding 
with uh, digging things up that they probably shouldn't have talked about or done until they got permission. So Th- there you go. Thank you, Don. 800-848-9222 if you have a question. Obviously, there's uh, a whole lot of renewed interest in nuclear energy and nuclear bombs and the fallout of nuclear bombs due to this incredibly popular Oppenheimer film. And I'm going to be talking about this a little bit later with Elliot Ackerman, who's sure. seen the film. Have you seen the film yet, Steve? Yes, I made it a point before we do Infinite Side here, because I thought we would be talking about this, to actually see it. And I promise on your show not to be a spoiler, but I thought it was well done. The only disagreement that I had with it was not the acting, but I think they could have, in my opinion, shown more about the effects of that bomb and the explosion. I mean, I'll leave it to the audience to see and make their interpretation. But here's the point that really coming now to us because of the interest in Trinity Back in July of July 16th, 1945, we're talking about this entire story about what really happened. And the professor that I had in college, Dr. Tombaugh, the Pluto discoverer, I never forget what he said to me one time in class. I asked him about this when I was just in my 20s. I said, you know, something big went boom in the sky over here in 45. And he said, sure. He was a witness to it and the distance between where he was and the bomb itself was probably as the bird would fly, maybe 100 miles. But he said the sky lit up like daylight. And obviously, they didn't know what that was. They thought it was a meteorite fall. But here's, here's the, bo- the bottom line on this. We're now finding out through all these deep research papers and scientists exploring this, that the resulting explosive force of that bomb was higher than we thought. It was an implosion plutonium bomb. I didn't know this. It was 25 kilotons. I was always telling people it was around 10 or 11 but accurate science is saying that this indeed was 25 kilotons. So what does that mean? It means that this explosion actually went farther, the radioactive fallout. Now they're saying, scientists collectively around the world, that the explosion effects of that residual, you know, all all the plutonium in, in the atmosphere, went out to 46 states in Canada and Mexico. And there are actually still people that are being paid by the federal government, not only for what happened at Trinity, you know, as a reparation for what happened for their medical, you know, conditions. But also we're finding out that in those specific tests where they tested the hydrogen bombs, that's phenomenal itself. So what they're saying is that Trinity explosion was far more powerful. And even books that I've read on this, Frank, they claim that they had scoured the area around there for many, many miles and tried to get a lot of people to leave. But because that horrible thunderstorm took place in the morning, which it should during that time of year, It cleared up and the rain stopped. But when that bomb went off, there are even stories that people were damaged even 100 or 200 miles away that refused to leave because of the radioactive fallout that was increased by the amount of rainfall that was there. It was like a green rain coming down. Very strange. A a lot of people eager to chat with you. 800-848-9222. Tom, listening on WCBM in Baltimore. You're on with Dr. Sky. Yeah, hello, guys. Yeah, I saw a piece on the Discovery Channel about asteroids. Let's say there was an asteroid uh, undetected, and it was detected to hit the Earth in six months. Do we have the technology to stop it? Absolutely not at this point. You know, it's so sad to report, but it's so truthful to report, and here's the sadness. We tested this out with a dart probe on a small, you know, asteroid, little binary asteroid called Didymus, and it's very successful. We, you know, plowed this metal kinetic thing into it like a little... You know, it's like a metal piece of metal that just hit the asteroid. 
we wanted to see if we could even deflect it a tiny bit. And this little object maybe is 500 feet in diameter. But what's interesting here is that no, I mean, there, sorry, there is no technology that we have right now that could do anything like that. And the concern is, gentlemen, that if we had an object as big as the Chelyabinsk event, that was back in 2013 when a 66-foot object came over Russia, and the explosion of that, it was an airburst, it sent, you know, maybe hundreds of people to hospitals with glass that exploded. It wasn't because of the, you know, the, the asteroidal body. But a little thing like 66 feet could cause a heck of a lot of damage in any downtown city. But no, not as far as I know, any way to deflect or destroy an asteroid on its inbound like that coming in a surprise. Uh, even if we had time, there's nothing I think we could do right now. That's it. Interesting. Interesting. Thank you for the question, Tom. You know, one of the people that gets mentioned from time to time, and I believe he has a small part in this film Oppenheimer when we discuss nuclear power, is Mm -hmm. Einstein. And there's been a lot of debate and a lot of discussion about Einstein's view of God and the afterlife. I'm wondering if it's possible to sort of marry Einstein's scientific work with what his theological work might have been. I think a lot of people know Einstein these days because of his theory of relativity. Give us a a quick refresher on what the theory of relativity is and what that might suggest about the possibility of an afterlife. Well, in the simplest way, Frank, let's go back to 1960 when he's talking about general and special theory of relativity. But the most prolific one that most people obviously need to know or do know is that gravity objects, meaning the bigger the mass of the, the more mass the object, the warpage of space-time is what he's talking about. In other words, you have in this particular case, let's say when he observed an eclipse of the sun, I believe 1919, his sole purpose of going to see the eclipse was not just the fun of saying, oh, wow, it got dark, and wow, that was a cool thing. He predicted that the planet Mercury would be on the limb edge of the sun, which it was. And through his calculations, he claimed, and he actually was proven right, that the closer an object is, at least visually, to a gravity source, that source of that gravity warps space-time. So in other words, he observed Mercury as if it was a little different separation from where it would be if the sun wasn't there. So the bottom line here is we're talking about the warpage of space-time. Space-time, you know, gravity is basically the warpage of space-time in the simplest way we can put it. But what's even more phenomenal about this whole thing is that what he is now alluding to through science, he's not around now, is scientists are saying that we might even have a closer connection to the afterlife Mm. because we really don't even understand what reality is. What's consciousness? I mean, we could do shows forever. And I must be always honest with the audience. I'm probably not your best guest on the concept of consciousness, but that's not the subject at hand right now. But here it goes into different paradigms of now where we can bring metaphysics together And what these scientists are saying is that through Einstein's theory of relativity and talking about the afterlife from the metaphysical side, that what we don't know about the universe, maybe, just maybe, because we know there's more than four dimensions, you know, fourth dimension is considered time, but there may be upwards of 20 or more dimensions. And they have a fancy term that scientists use called Kalabayao manifolds. Sounds like I'm talking about my engine overheating or something, <laughs> and the and the manifold is leaking. But for all of our great, you know, uh, people who work, on, you know, on vehicles, mechanics, total respect and love there because hey, that's an important thing when your car's not working. But what they're talking about here is probably the most amazing thing ever. 
It's bringing the concept of talking about metaphysics, about what happens after we move on from this world, the afterlife. Many Look how many religions have theories about where we go, heaven, hell. We, we, we go to purgatory, or some people believe we, be, we turn into what? Divine animals and spirits or reincarnation. But the truth is, there's probably, according to even some of these physicists and astrophysicists, a connection between that world and who knows, maybe those that have departed, Frank, are even closer than we think, but in ways that we in our minds can't even understand. And maybe we're not supposed to quite yet, but the work continues. Very, fascinating? It certainly is. We've been talking with Steve Cates. If you have questions, you can give us a call, 800-848-9222. We're going to continue on the infinite side of midnight straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Black hole sun, won't you come? Wash away the rain. Black hole sun, won't you come? Won't you come? Won't you come? Stood Soundgarden singing about Black Hole Sun. We have our go-to black hole expert and our go-to sun expert, Dr. Sky, better known in the non-radio world as Steve Cates. You have to check out his podcast, though, The Dr. Sky Experience. You can subscribe wherever podcasts are available, or you can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, one of the valuable services that you provide, not just to our listeners, but to me, quite frankly, is you always give us a good idea of what we can catch in the night night sky. Sometimes it's constellations, sometimes it's planets, sometimes it's space stations. Next week, I'm actually going to be in uh, Cape May, New Jersey, where there's a good, ah. a good deal less um, visual pollution, I guess is the uh, what they call it, where yes. I'll a- actually be able to see what's going on in the night sky. I plan to bring my binoculars. What can I see and what can all the folks listening to us be excited about seeing that's maybe a little special or out of the ordinary over the next couple of weeks? Well, here we go. If this was gastronomy, we'd be giving great recipes of great things to eat. But in the astronomy world, Frank, here we go. We start off in the west, northwest after sunset. And we just showed this to a few people here tonight that had the opportunity as the sun went down. Venus is still hugging the horizon. It's like diving toward the horizon as it gets closer to the Earth. By the way, Venus gets closest of all the planets, not Mars, by about 25 million miles. So you can see Venus Low in the northwest, and it's interesting, we showed in the telescope, the tiniest little thin crescent. It looks like a miniature moon in the sky. But it should do it this week because Venus moves into the glare of the sun, and then it moves back into the morning sky. But it also dives toward Mercury as you move toward the 27th. You should be able to see that in the west-northwest if skies are clear. But the moon, now at first quarter, beautiful view we had, and people can see it if they're still looking around the nation, around the world, if it's in in the dark sky, maybe even in daylight, you can see the moon. But that moves on. We find in August, 
something really interesting. There's two beautiful full moons in the month of August, and they're both what they call supermoons. And the term supermoon, Frank, is not really an astronomy term. It's an astrology term, but we'll take it because what does it mean? It's when the moon gets closest to the Earth at the time that it's at its perigee or full. So we have one on August 1st called the full sturgeon moon, named after that bait, you know, Great Lake, uh, Great Lake fish, sure. Native American cultures. And then we have one on the 30th, 31st, that night, which then we call somewhat correctly and maybe somewhat incorrectly, the second full moon of the calendar month is sometimes referred to as a blue moon, but not necessarily in all areas of astronomy. Some say that it's a different term when it's like it should be like three moons in a season or whatever. But you can see this. But here's the final one real quick. This is a good time to start looking in the northeast sky after midnight till dawn. Now, that's your show. Hey, people can go out while, they're, while you're on that's the right. air listening to Frank. You can see the beginnings of the Perseid meteor shower. And why do I say it's good now? Because the moon will be setting. You don't want to do it during full moon. But the peak is going to come when we continue to do infinite side here in August. The night of August 12th into the 13th is the peak night. And Frank, I'll tell you, of anything we've ever talked about on television and radio over these 30, 40 years, this meteor shower rocks because people get so excited. They're usually on vacations. The weather's warm. It's not intolerable like Phoenix, but it's still good at night. Look in the northeast sky. You'll get to see, if you see any of this debris, it's all little debris from a comet called Comet Swift-Tuttle. And quickly, Swift-Tuttle is the object that gets closest to the Earth on a regular basis over the time of all time. So it's a comet. Now, not to alarm people, but there are some theories, I don't buy this, that the orbit of Comet Swift-Tuttle will eventually get close enough to the Earth that it could strike the Earth. Well, that's really bad because it's not a meteor. It's obviously something that obviously is much larger and much more powerful. But on the positive side, Frank, you're in sky heaven, and so are the other people who will be able to observe the sky. When you have a chance to get some dark skies, but there's something very quickly I wanted to mention, too, and I don't know if we have time, but talking about the priorities, the Pew Research Group has really done something. Pew Research Center has thrown this question out. They did it in 2018. What are the most important things about space that people are concerned about? And guess what tops the list? Monitoring asteroids and other objects that could hit the Earth. 60% 60% of the population that responded said that that's indeed the, the, the priority. I saw that. When back in 2018, yeah. 62%. But guess what the lowest one was? It's sad. Only 11% now say that sending astronauts and humans to Mars is a priority. And also sending astronauts to the moon was only 12%. And going back into 2018, the moon one, which is 12% now, was 13%. And the 11% now for Mars was 18%. So... I don't know. I was uh, a little surprised at that, but I guess we want to make sure we don't get hit by us. Well, that's what I was just going to say. I mean, I, everybody. I want to go to Mars and the moon as much as the next guy, mm-hmm. but if the choice is having the an asteroid collide with the Earth right. and create event-level extinction event, that is uh, that is the kind of thing that I think should be a priority, and I guess right. I'm, I'm not alone. All right, a lot of people are eager to chat with you. Let's try and squeeze in um, as many folks as we can in the next uh, eight, eight to nine minutes here. Mari, is in Brooklyn. Hello, Mario. Good evening, gentlemen. My question is this to you, Dr. Sky. Tomorrow sure. there's going to be hearings on UAPs from reputable people that you know have mm-hmm. knowledge of of the yes. uh, subject. My question is: I, I heard 
you know, if I'm not mistaken, that an Israeli nuclear science says that there's a federation between Israel, the United States, and the UAP, uh, and you know, entities that we mm-hmm. see in our uh, atmosphere. Do you have any knowledge of that? I really don't, Mario, and I was honest with everybody when we asked these questions. But it's interesting. In other words, what what I think I'm hearing you say is what? That the Israelis and the United States have some sort of agreement that we know about this? Is that is that what you're trying to drive at or, or explain? Yeah, some federation of some type. Yeah, and I've, I've seen that claim, uh, too. That's from yeah. uh, Dr. Haim Eshed, who was the former head not, of... He's a professor of aeronautics, and he was a, a former, I believe, defense minister in the Israeli government. Well, Mario, one last closing comment on this, and this is something that I read many, many times, and you know, I never really could take credit, you know, take credence on this, is that the Eisenhower administration, President Eisenhower, or his representatives, had an actual meeting with the aliens. I know I'm laughing because it, it's one of these things. I want to see proof. So does everybody out at Holloman Air Force Base, and that individuals from this planet, our humans, were given an exchange for technology that was given to us from the alien technology. Frank, have you heard that? or Mary? I have. I have. We've done some segments uh, on that. Yeah, uh, and I, I just... I don't think that's going to come up in today's hearing. Uh, we'll we'll see. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, give us a quick update on Solar Cycle Twenty Five. Uh, we had been concerned about some of the potential disruptions from solar flares when it comes to radio signals. What's happening with that? Well, the analysis by the astrophysicists were that the solar cycle should peak twenty five in the year twenty twenty five. But interestingly enough, it may be peaking in twenty twenty four. And as we've been talking, and also with John Katsimatidis on, you know, Cats at Night and Cats and, and Cosby, and we're talking in the Cats Roundtable, we're talking about this most amazing subject. Solar flares and CMEs are just blasting out of the sun. Get set for a ringside seat, folks, because even though we haven't had a major geomagnetic storm since April, I can almost assure everybody listening here that, yes, that's going to happen because the cycle is picking up even more in, with more intensity. And it's just incredible because this is something that was not really predicted. This cycle will indeed be more powerful than the explanation or the theories before it. So stay tuned for some uh, interesting stuff coming down the pipeline. Joe is in Queens. Joe, what's your question? Hey, Steve. Yeah. Uh, You know, one of the things I was thinking about was I heard recently about the rumbling of elephants can go as much as four miles. Now, the elephants apparently can hear these rumbles of the other elephants four miles away, but humans don't necessarily pick it up. So would you say that there's a disadvantage within the human auditory system uh, applied to space or, or, or other things where we, we're not picking up certain things that other, say, animals can hear. Mm-hmm. Yes, I believe that very strongly, Joe. I believe if we look at dogs and cats, they have some amazing perceptions. Talk about when tornadoes come or, you know, violent storms, hurricanes and earthquakes. You're right. They, they, they can detect this. The rumbling of the, you know, the hoofs of, let's say, elephants that's maybe a communication system between them. And we were talking just recently with John on, on his program about the deep sounds that are, you know, loud sounds that are occurring in, in nature. That one of the loudest is the sperm whales that are underneath the oceans. This is amazing, Joe, that the decibel level of some of those signals, the clicking, is over 205 decibels. 
hey, jet engines, folks, are about 140, maybe 150 decibels. So we have a communication system underwater. So nature, the animals, I'm sure they perceive so many things that we don't. Wouldn't that be interesting if we could see in the visible spectrum of radio waves and frequencies? But I'm sure of one thing, if we could see the radio signal visually of WABC, Talk Radio 77, WABC, that would be a powerful signal. be a powerful view, wouldn't it, Frank? Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, That's for sure. Thanks, Joe. Very quickly, Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Uh, good morning, moral gentlemen. Um, this is old data from the space shuttle era, but 11,000 pounds of fuel per second is burned when they were shooting off the um, um, the, um, the the space shuttles. I have a question. As a body of motion tends to stay in motion, could it be possible mm-hmm. to use a huge roller coaster built in, let's say, a mountainous region to create enough initial speed to gain momentum for liftoff using magnetic or kinetic engines? He has propulsion before ignition as the um uh, as the body motion tends to stay in motion that could reduce the payload of the booster rockets and so forth giving the craft uh, more mm-hmm. um uh, possibly able to reach uh, the escape velocity faster and with less weight in the rocket yes and this is before the rockets well, take off and ignition well tommy you, you remember how they good used to do with the pl- oh, i'm sorry i get ahead sir no, 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 that's okay. No, you bring up some really interesting points here about celestial mechanics and propulsion. But there's actually a proposal, gentlemen, that I think is even more practical. It, it's, it's kind of sounding weird, but it's the space elevator. And if we could build one of those, it's like having a giant tether. And people laughed at this. You know, they laughed at the Wright brothers, too. But you have this giant tether that's suspended from the ground to space. And what you could do with that, if you built it dimensionally big enough, you could get up cost per pound efficiency way better than chemical rockets are at this point to get away from the Earth's escape of seven and a half miles per second. So, Tommy, your ideas are great, but maybe we should be taking a look, all of us, at the concept of space elevator. It's not something that's not within the reach of, uh, of science. Fascinating. Uh, Steve, on that note, we're going to have to end it there. The hour has flown by, as it always does, whenever we're together. I will see you in two weeks if you're game for it. Oh, absolutely, Frank. Wouldn't miss a show, and thank you, and thanks for having me. Appreciate it. If people want to hear more of the subjects that we talked about, go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Search for the Dr. Sky Experience. You can also search for it on any podcast app. It's a terrific look at what's happening in the cosmos. Meantime, keep reaching for the stars, but always keep your feet on the ground. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.